NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. President Biden visited Florida Saturday to survey damage from Hurricane Idalia. We have the latest. And student loan repayments start up again next month. But Education Secretary Miguel Cardona says the White House is still trying to curb college debt. We're really looking at holistic approaches to making higher education more affordable and more accessible. And a new coffee table book makes the case that NBA players are not just giants on the court, they're also style icons. And the puzzle, it's Sunday, September 3rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Heavy rain is leading to flood watches across the western U.S., including much of Nevada. There, in the remote Black Rock Desert, flooding has stranded thousands of attendees at the Burning Man Festival. Officials shut the gates, restricting access into and out of the event, where conditions are being described as resembling a mud bath. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. In a statement on its website, the Burning Man organization said access to the site is closed until further notice. It urged attendees to conserve food, water and fuel and seek shelter. Festival goers are hunkering down after overnight rains deluged their elaborate camps and art installations. This isn't the first time the entrance has been blocked at this year's festival. A group of climate protesters caused miles of gridlock after parking a 28-foot trailer in the way at the start of the event. More rain is expected. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. President Biden says support for Florida will go on as long as it takes. He did aerial and on-the-ground tours Saturday to see damage wrought by Hurricane Idalia. No official tally of storm damage has been released, but it's estimated to cost in the billions. And now, with back-to-back-to-back natural disasters, Biden is asking Congress to boost emergency funding to $16 billion. He spoke from hard-hit Live Oak. Nobody can deny the impact of climate crises. Nobody intelligent can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around, around the nation and the world for that matter. Today, it's nearly three times as likely that an Atlantic-born tropical cyclone will wind up as a hurricane as it was just three decades ago. Scientists know that climate change is fueling hurricanes with warmer ocean waters acting as an accelerant. Residents of Hong Kong and southern China are cleaning up from one of the strongest storms to hit in decades. Typhoon Sayola packed winds of up to 125 miles per hour. And nearby, another storm, Typhoon Haiku, is hitting Taiwan. NPR's Emily Fang reports. China issued its highest typhoon warning and 900,000 people were evacuated from high-risk areas. Hong Kong and the southern Chinese city of Guangdong canceled flights in preparation for the storm starting Friday afternoon, but some 300 passengers were stuck in Hong Kong's airport as Sayola passed. Guangdong also canceled trains but restarted those Sunday. The storm brought heavy rain and flooding. And Sayola is not the only storm in the Pacific this week. Nearby Taiwan is now bracing for Typhoon Haiku. It will hit the island's east coast first before passing over the island. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. In Ukraine, Russia conducted a massive overnight drone attack, once again hitting the shipping ports on the Danube River west of Odessa. Kyiv says they shot down 22 of the 25 drones launched. Damage was done to port infrastructure and two people were injured. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Public health officials plan to watch COVID numbers closely as more students return to school this week. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports COVID cases and hospitalizations have been rising for several weeks. The late summer COVID bump doesn't appear to be over just yet, but State Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says Massachusetts is well positioned to manage it. We're actually much lower than we've seen in Massachusetts at least last year or the year before at this time. So I do feel better about where we're starting from. I also think that we're just more prepared and we have more knowledge now than we had a year ago or two years ago, and that that puts us in a much better place. Rapid COVID tests are no longer free for most people, but some communities, including Boston, are distributing free tests. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Officials are investigating what they say is a potential criminal act that happened on board a Boston-bound flight yesterday. State police say American Airlines notified them about the situation yesterday morning while the plane was on its way from Charlotte, North Carolina. State police will assist federal authorities with the investigation. Officials did not specify the nature of the criminal act. Former U.N. Ambassador and former Democratic presidential candidate Bill Richardson was found dead in his summer home in Chatham yesterday. Richardson's foundation says he died in his sleep. The former New Mexico governor had close ties to Massachusetts. He went to a prep school in Concord and graduated from Tufts University. Richardson was 75 years old. King Richard's Fair is now open for the season. The Renaissance-themed festival in Carver began this weekend. It offers rides, entertainment, and food, including the signature meal of giant turkey legs. Gates open at 10.30 each weekend morning through October 22nd. It is 67 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow for Labor Day and Tuesday. You can expect plenty of sunshine with highs reaching the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for being with us. For the second time in recent weeks, President Joe Biden visited a community hit by a disaster. In August, it was Maui. Yesterday, it was Live Oak, Florida, following Hurricane Idalia. I'm here today to deliver a clear message to the people of Florida and throughout the Southeast. As I told your governor, if there's anything your state needs, I'm ready to mobilize that support. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keefe was in the press corps traveling with Biden and joins us now. Hi, Tam. Good morning. So tell us about the scene there in Live Oak during the Biden visit. There is a certain rhythm to these unfortunately common disaster visits. So the president and first lady surveyed the damage from the air in Marine One. He went into a neighborhood with massive downed trees everywhere. And they also visited an elementary school multipurpose room where Biden was briefed by local officials, FEMA and and other first responders. U.S. Senator Rick Scott was there and he praised the president for rapidly approving a major disaster declaration and surging federal 
federal help into the state. And pretty much everyone there praised the federal response so far. But as President Biden said, there is still a lot of work to do. Uh, Biden also called on Congress to urgently pass $16 billion in aid to replenish the FEMA disaster relief fund. Um, That's more than they thought they would need just a few weeks ago. But there have been a lot of disasters, and it is still early in the hurricane season. So Senator Rick Scott was with the president, but I gather that another prominent Florida Republican was not. Indeed. Uh, With these sorts of non-political visits, it is standard for the governor to meet with the president. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Governor Ron DeSantis opted not to appear with President Biden. Uh, Of course, DeSantis is running for the Republican nomination for president. And having a feel-good bipartisan moment with the guy you're trying to boot from office is maybe a better fit with Biden's brand than with DeSantis's. Mm. Um, I I should add that this would have been their third disaster appearing together, the Surfside condo collapse in 2021 and Hurricane Ian last year. Uh, What are the president and governor saying about, you know, not meeting? Well, the president really downplayed it, uh, talking about his repeated conversations with Governor DeSantis, even thanking him for helping to plan the trip, uh, which was a subtle response to DeSantis's stated reason for skipping the meeting. A DeSantis spokesman had explained the snub, saying that the security around the meeting would discuss uh, would disrupt uh, recovery efforts. But the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, said that there had been a lot of collaboration on the visit, that the location Biden visited uh, had power restored, search and rescue efforts were done, and was mutually agreed upon with the governor's team on the ground to minimize disruption. So I asked her if the lack of a meeting or the lack of a photo op would affect the recovery in any way. And she said, not at all. Um, and there was ample opportunity for Biden or his press secretary on this trip to call DeSantis out as putting politics ahead of the people of his state. But they just didn't do that. They kind of just shrugged and talked about working uh, to help the people of Florida recover. And, and Tam, Congress is back this week and with some really high stakes issues on the agenda. They like to leave things to the last minute, as always. Always. Yes. Uh, So for starters, uh, there's this disaster relief money. Uh, The White House is also asking Congress to urgently approve more funding to help Ukraine as it tries to make progress defending itself against Russia. Uh, But they also need to fund the government for the coming year. Uh, And that fiscal year starts at the end of this month. Um, When the debt ceiling crisis was resolved earlier this year, it included an agreement on spending levels for the fiscal year uh, starting next month. But almost immediately, uh, the most conservative bloc of House Republicans said they wanted more spending cuts. So the U.S. could well be headed for another government shutdown, or at least a lot of drama around a government shutdown. Uh, One note, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the conservative Republican close ally of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, said that she won't vote to fund the government without the House first launching an impeachment inquiry into the president. NPR's Tamara Keefe. Tam, thanks so much. You're welcome. back-to-school season is in full swing, and it seems that many classrooms across the country are now the front line for a whole swath of issues. There are political fights about what can be taught, 
there's a shortage of teachers and bus drivers. And for many people who have completed their higher education journeys, it's back to student loan repayments. They'll start up next month for the first time in three years. We're going to dig into all of this now with Department of Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. So let's start with student debt. Uh, the Biden administration has rolled out a new repayment plan called the SAVE plan, which gives borrowers more options on how to pay down their debt. But what do you say to people who really got their hopes up over the idea of, of student debt forgiveness? What I would tell those folks is I'm, I'm right there with you and we're not done fighting. Uh, we feel that the Supreme Court got it wrong. And within an hour of their decision, we were back at it, uh, trying to put forward a plan under the Higher Education Act to provide debt relief to make sure that higher education is more affordable, make sure that people could land on their feet after this pandemic and uh, just open doors to higher education. You know, there are people who are critical of student loan forgiveness. They view it as um, the Biden administration's way of currying favor with younger voters. They view it as a way to help people who are maybe doctors, lawyers, who maybe should have some money. What's your arguments for why the federal government should be stepping in to help these borrowers? From day one, this administration has been focused on addressing a broken system of higher education. I guess to um, refute that claim, Look at what we've done for public servants. These are people who are not making a lot of money. We fixed the public service loan forgiveness program and provided uh, debt relief to over 650,000 public servants. We're really looking at holistic approaches to making higher education more affordable and more accessible. The targeted debt relief plan that's getting a lot of attention uh, is, is just one strategy. We're making loan repayment more manageable for folks too because we recognize that for millions of Americans, they have to repay their loans. We just want to make sure that we prevent them from falling into default. Let's move on to this academic school year. Uh, my kids just started up this week. Um, you know, there are a lot of staff shortages in many districts. What's your department's answer to addressing teacher turnover and convincing more people to go into education and making sure that they are properly qualified to do so. Right. So Aisha, you and I have something in common, right? We dropped off our kids this week and I'm sure uh, millions of parents across the country just want the best for their child. Um, I think this teacher shortage across the country is a symptom of a teacher respect issue we have in this country. We have many that are targeting our schools instead of supporting them. Um, I look at public education as the great equalizer in this country. Uh, we need to invest in our schools, invest in our educators, when we invest in our educators and make sure that they have a competitive salary, we're helping kids at the end of the day. You know, and I talk about the ABCs of teaching, uh, Aisha. A stands for agency, letting our uh, professionals who are in front of the classroom be respected as professionals, B, better working conditions, and then C is competitive salaries. Sadly, it's too common in our country that teachers qualify for state assistance. We have to raise the bar for our teachers. Can I ask you what specifically the administration can do about like teacher retention, like when it comes to funding and money um, and making sure that the federal government are, is it, is it grants? Is it, you know, loans? Is it, what can the federal government do there? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have several strategies for over $3 billion in grants to states and um, universities that have 
teacher preparation programs that work with districts. You know, when we talk about having teachers be trauma-informed after the pandemic, well, we're providing dollars to make sure that there's professional development opportunities for teachers so they can continue to grow. We're also providing technical assistance to make sure that universities and districts are working well together to create programs that get high school students thinking about becoming a teacher early on. This is what we're doing to support our educators. Many school districts are making it harder for teachers and students to talk about subjects like Black history, gender, and sexual identities in the classrooms. Obviously, states and school districts set curriculums, but what guidance is the Department of Education giving on this and on these fights over, you know, gender identity, over Black history? You know, it's disappointing for a party that constantly talks about smaller government to overreach into the classroom from the governor's office. We need to make sure that our schools are safe places for all students, where all students feel welcome, and where students are able to learn about our country's history, the truth of our country's history, the good and the bad, so that we can grow. I think what we're seeing across the country is an injection of politics in an effort to divide public schools so that the voucher option sounds so much better. But I don't believe that spending public dollars to fund private school tuitions for wealthy people is the path forward for this country. That's why I'm fighting to make sure that our public schools are funded well, that we're listening to our parents and our educators in our public schools, and that we have a certified and highly qualified teacher in every classroom. That's what parents across the country want. That's Department of Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Good talking. You take care. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up in about a half hour on 90.9 WBUR, you'll consider the NBA and style in a conversation with the author of Fly, the big book of basketball fashion. You'll get that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. It is 67 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the mid-80s, and that forecast holds for tomorrow on Labor Day and again on Tuesday. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Flood watches are in effect across the western U.S., including much of Nevada. That's where the annual Burning Man Festival is happening amid mud and flooding, spurring officials to shut the gates and advise thousands of attendees to shelter in place. President Biden pledged support for Florida will go on as long as it takes. He toured damage done by last week's Hurricane Adalia and says nobody can deny the impact of the climate crisis. He's asking Congress for $16 billion in emergency funding to help with natural disasters. 
Thousands of protesters are turning out in Niger's capital, demanding that French troops leave after President Mohamed Bazoum, a French ally, was toppled in a coup in July. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at HintWater.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Before killing three people at a Dollar General store in Jacksonville, Florida last week, the gunman made a stop. Edward Waters University and HBCU. Its president says students spotted him putting on gloves and an armored vest in a library parking lot. They went and got a security officer. Lieutenant Antonio Bailey, he then began to approach the individual who by that time was now seated in his vehicle, at which time upon recognizing the presence of Lieutenant Bailey, the individual immediately fled the university parking lot, jumping the curb and nearly hitting a nearby brick column in the parking lot. It's not clear if the HBCU was a target for the shooter who was a white supremacist, but are historically black colleges and universities on guard. Lance Hatcher is chief of police at Morgan State University and HBCU in Baltimore. He joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. Glad to be here. How often did you think about schools like yours, HBCUs, being targets of racist violence before last week's shooting in Jacksonville? Well, unfortunately, we think about it quite often, you know, if not daily weekly. So we subscribe to the theory that not if, but when, and that's how we we drive ourselves daily to ensure that we can at least try to prevent these things and if not, mitigate them. Has uh, Morgan State had um, many credible threats of racially motivated violence? We have not, fortunately. The most recent that we've had was the bombing threats back, I believe, about a year ago that Morgan and uh, many other HBCUs received. How did that affect the campus? How did that affect um, the, the way you approached your job? It, it did not uh, negatively affect us. We routinely subscribe to the fact that we, we don't get prepared, we stay prepared. So when they first started to occur, Texas Southern was one of the first ones that received it. We're all part of a consortium of chiefs of police and directors of security for HBCUs. So we've communicated at that time what was going on and the challenges that we were um, encountering with the bomb threats. And through our conversations, we were prepared when we received ours in the beginning of February. What steps has Morgan State taken to adapt to the rising threat of violent extremism and mass shootings in the U.S.? Well, we've invested um, very significantly in upgrading cameras. 
we have approximately a thousand cameras on campus, um, lighting on campus, additional police officers, security officers that belong and work for the institution itself. And then we have a contractual security company that um, supplies us upwards of 25 security officers per shift. And we have them strategically placed on campus and in our residential on-campus housing, as well as our off-campus housing. You know, it's no secret that HBCUs are uh, generally underfunded. How does that complicate safety planning? Historically, for HBCUs, it does make it challenging. We may not have the financial resources that white institutions may have. However, um, as far as Morgan, I can only speak for Morgan, Dr. Wilson, the president of Morgan State University, lobbied and petitioned the lawmakers in Annapolis and has secured additional funding for police and safety on campus. Also, as the police department, we have sought out grants that allow us to purchase body-worn cameras, vehicles, as well as um, bullet-resistant vests. So it is a challenge, but it's not unsurmountable. That's Lance Hatcher, Morgan State University's Chief of Police. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad to be here. Now to California, where state lawmakers are trying to block the first big hand count election there in 40 years. It's in reaction to a move by right-wing conspiracy theorists in charge of Shasta County in Northern California. This spring, they said they were ditching electronic voting machines. Roman Roman Battaglia of Jefferson Public Radio reports that the expense of doing that is becoming clear, and it is considerable. The Democratic supermajority in California's legislature seems poised to pass a bill that would essentially ban hand-count elections in the state. It's aimed squarely at Shasta County, which this year dropped Dominion electronic voting machines in favor of hand-counting ballots instead. Shasta County Supervisor Tim Garman says it's a sign the state is trying to prevent this from spreading to other counties. Shasta County is not our own country. We don't get to make all of our own laws. There are things we can and cannot do, and we've stepped way out of our lane with this. If it passes, Shasta County could have less than a month to completely change how they conduct their next election. The county has been preparing for months for its first major hand count since 1972. Um, Good morning, everyone. On an early August morning, around 20 people are gathered on the empty first floor of an office in Redding. Joanna Franciscat, the deputy clerk for Shasta County, is training them to count ballots entirely by hand. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate it. The last time Shasta County did a hand count election, the population was less than half of what it is now. Temporary staff Tanner Johnson and Ann Silvera sort the ballots into different bins corresponding to the chosen candidate. For this pretend election, the candidates are music artists. Ready? We're ready. We're ready. Let's begin. And Beyonce, we have one, two, When the right-wing majority on Shasta County's Board of Supervisors cut its contract for electronic voting machines with Dominion, the company was still suing Fox News for defamation. It settled that suit in April for $787 million. Supervisor Kevin Cry said the county had the support of prominent election fraud conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell. Cry declined to comment for the story, but his actions don't sit well with fellow county supervisor Mary Rickert, who voted against returning to hand-count elections. Supervisor Cry reached out to Mike Lindell and was actually communicating with him during the board meeting while we were in session, which I was very troubled by that. 
County Supervisor Tim Garman says he was shocked to learn that it'll cost around $1.6 million to hire the staff needed to count all the ballots in time. That's not even going to include all the parts to it. You're going to have added costs for where are we going to count the ballots? Where's that going to happen at? You know, it's cameras, security, tables, chairs. You can go on down the line. How much is it really going to cost us? Not 1.6. It's going to be considerably more. Garmin and others are worried about where this money will come from. The county is already facing a major staffing shortage, and an entire floor of the county jail has been closed for over a year because of it. Shasta County Clerk Kathy Darling-Allen says the far-right supervisors put their trust in unproven claims of election fraud. Whoever it is that sold the board the concept that this is a, a cost-saving measure, you know, really was mistaken, frankly. And that's putting it very kindly. If they weren't mistaken, they were just lying. And I don't know which is true. Hand counting will affect city governments, too. Redding, the largest city in Shasta County, pays the county elections department to run local elections. Julie Winter, a Reading City Council member, says they've learned election costs are expected to quadruple at a minimum because of hand counting. So when you get a big chunk like that, $136,000 per election, we're going to have to set aside at least two to three times that per year, depending on what the election costs. There's really no other place to take that big of a chunk from. It's going to have to come from either police or fire. County Supervisor Mary Rickert says she's been in touch with other California counties, where there's also curiosity about hand counting. I'm hoping that um, cooler heads prevail and that people really do the research and find out from the mistakes that have been made here that uh, it was not a good decision. Back at the elections office in Reading, the temporary staff are wrapping up their mock hand count of the ballots. Julie Bramer says she already understands why this work is exhausting. If your mind wanders for a second, you just, you know, you could check the wrong box or, I don't know, you really got to pay attention. Darling Allen came down to check on the progress with one of her supervisors, John Amaker. 19 people, 6 hours, 500 ballots. Last November, there were almost 70,000 ballots cast in Shasta County. Darling Allen says they used to get early results out as the polls closed. So you know how people check the website right at 8.05 to see who, who's ahead? Yeah. We're not zeros. Know, we'll have we're not zeros. Results for days, days, literally days. Even though she disagrees with the idea of hand counting every ballot, she says she's trying her best to make it work with what she's been given. For NPR News, I'm Roma Battaglia in Shasta County, California. For the 2024 Paris Olympics, organizers are making the Seine River a centerpiece of the Games, from the opening ceremony to some swimming events. But that requires cleaning up the famous waterway, and it's proving to be an uphill or rather upstream battle. Reporter Rebecca Rossman sent us this report from Paris. The sun hasn't fully risen, but hundreds of spectators have lined up along the banks of the Seine to watch this historic moment. Fifty top athletes plunge into the river for the World Triathlon, a test of the open water course for next year's Olympic Games. It's a dream come true, says spectator Brice Collard, who came here with his sister to cheer on French athlete Vincent Luis. Another excited onlooker is 31-year-old Fritz Lobinger, a German who has been living in Paris for six years. I mean, it's basically like a natural stadium, right? 
you have like so much areas on both sides of the river where you can go and watch and, and yeah it's really really awesome getting to this point though has been rocky at best two other triathlons scheduled for last month were canceled because of poor water quality Another event in early August was scrapped at the last minute after storm runoff polluted the river. But Paris is investing more than $1.5 billion to clean up the Seine. And organizers of the Olympic Games insist the river will be ready for athletes come next summer. The River Seine is one of the main monuments of Paris. That's Pierre Rabadin, the deputy mayor in charge of sports. He says making the Seine swimmable isn't just for the Olympics. It's part of a wider plan to open up the river to the general public by 2025. We would like to have a strong legacy after the official competition. And this maybe main legacy is to being able to reconnect people with the water and uh, the water close to where they live. And uh, that's the river Seine. Swimming in the Seine was first banned in 1923 due to excessive water pollution. And various politicians have been promising to make it swimmable again for more than 30 years. The reason it's been such a challenge to see it through is because of how the city's sewage system works. The city inherited its sewage system, says Samuel Colin Canivez, the city's chief engineer for sanitation works. He walks me through some of its history, which dates back to the 19th century under the famed engineer Eugène Belgrand. Belgrand created a network of tunnels, he says, to help fight the spread of diseases like cholera. The system today has 1,500 miles of gravitational tunnels, which deliver sewage and stormwater runoff to wastewater treatment plants. But when the heavy rain hits, the system can become overwhelmed and excess water is dumped into the Seine. Donc, to keep that dirty stormwater at bay, says Colon Canivez, the city is building a massive rainwater storage tank under a train station in southeast Paris. Once it's complete next spring, the tank will be able to hold water equivalent to the volume of 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. But he says even this colossal tank isn't a guarantee. The Seine will always be a storm drain. The organizers say competitions may be delayed if the water is declared too polluted right before an event, but they remain determined to use the Seine. And spectators like Fritz Lobinger are too. Apparently now it's clean, so I wouldn't mind trying it out. <laughs> and the athletes already are. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Paris. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Rise and shine, if you can. Kids are back in school, and as all you parents out there know, the morning struggle is real. It is 7.14, and I am now waking my kids up. I'm running behind, running behind. We have to be out of here by 7.50. I know you're supposed to wake them up earlier than that. Hey, got Annalise. Hey, come on. Come on, kids, get up. 
Get up, get up, get up, get up. <laughs> now, all of my kids are in school for the first time this year. There's three kids that have to get out the door every morning. And I'm wondering, like, is there a better way to do this? <laughs> um, so who to call? Jamila Lemieux. She's a contributor to Slate's parenting column, Care and Feeding, as well as co-host of the podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Jamila, I am so glad to talk to you. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It took 38 minutes from getting the kids up to when they left the house, probably a little bit more, 48, something like that, which is pretty fast. That is impressive. But it's unusual. And it's the first week. It gets worse as the year goes on. But those 38 minutes, even that time, is stressful. What tips do you have for creating a smooth morning routine? Well, routine is the key word. You want to try to make your mornings look the same as possible every day. And, of course, especially with three children, my goodness, something will happen, you know. (laughs) inevitably you'll be thrown off at some point but you still want your mornings to feel familiar you want the kids to have a rhythm so if they get up at 6 30 every day they get up at 6 30 every day I have found that from over it's been years of getting into this rhythm which was really hard at first what happens the night before probably sets the tone for the day of yeah as much as you can do the night before the better. You can really treat yourself and make lunch the night before if you're up to it. That'll save yourself some time in the morning. But if you can lay outfits out, make sure book bag is packed and notes are signed, homework is checked. Don't save any of that stuff to do in the morning unless you absolutely have to. A lot of tips, they're like things that parents can do to make the morning easier, like you said. But how do you make the kid independent? You know, it depends on your child. I've known people that have been able to, you know, entrust a five-year-old to brush their teeth with minimal supervision. My daughter, I still, she's 10, and I'm still supervising the getting ready process. She picks out her outfit, and she washes up in the morning or takes a shower and brushes her teeth. But, like, I'm still monitoring that. One thing that can be helpful is timers. Okay. Give your kid five minutes to brush their teeth, set a timer. When the timer goes off, move them to the next activity. So that way you may be able to leave them in the room by themselves, but you're still keeping on top of them and making sure that they're moving on schedule. Do you have a message for parents who are struggling with this and, you know, maybe not always succeeding? Being gracious with yourself, because honestly, mornings just suck as a parent. It's the worst part of the job. I, too, have gone through seasons where we're late all the time. We just can't get it together. But is the child fed, clean, dressed? Did they make it? Yes. Okay. Well, we won. (laughs) That's Jamila Lemieux, a writer for Slate's parenting column, Care and Feeding, and co-host of the podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, you got your lunchbox. Okay, here you go. All right, have a great day. Love you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The annual Labor Day breakfast in Boston is set for tomorrow morning. This year, following the breakfast presented by the Greater Boston Labor Council, participants will hold a rally in downtown Crossing to support SAG-AFTRA and the striking actors and writers. Campus police at BU, MIT, and Northeastern are warning students to be vigilant 
After break-ins have been reported in residences, the police departments say unlocked windows seem to be a target. Northampton has become the first community in Hampton, Hampshire, and Franklin counties to provide outdoor boxes filled with a drug that reverses an opioid overdose. Northampton already offered Narcan indoors in municipal buildings during business hours, but the new boxes make the drug available around the clock. This afternoon, the Red Sox face the Royals in Kansas City. It is 67 degrees in Boston, and today, tomorrow for Labor Day, and Tuesday, you can expect lots of sunshine and temperatures in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers create healthy classrooms with a nine-month online graduate certificate in social-emotional learning. Online.merrimack.edu. After more than three years, tens of millions of federal student loan borrowers will soon have to begin repaying their loans. I think I have my login information for Mohila. Is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. We talk to experts and answer listeners' questions about what borrowers need to know before repayment starts again. And all things considered, from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. No, I'm just joking. It's time to play the puzzle! Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi, Will. Hello, Aisha. I tried to trick you a little bit, you know. I did, I did a down version at first. I know. <laughs> I just, I love your voice. So, any way you want to say it. So, w- will you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Mary Springhorn of Bellingham, Washington. I said, think of a noun in six letters. It sounds like a two-word phrase: two letters in the first word, six letters in the second, and the thing named by the noun can have a seriously bad effect on what's named by the phrase. What is it? And the answer is miasma, M-I-A-S-M-A. That means a bad atmosphere or vapor, and that would have a bad effect on my asthma. Oh, this was a a tough week for the puzzle. It was another toughie. There were just 125 correct entries. Our winner is Alice Doolittle of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Alice. Thank you. So, and and how did you come up with this? You just knew the word miasma? No, uh, I, uh, when I first heard the challenge, I thought, oh, that's, that's too hard. I'm not even going to try. But then I started thinking of phrases with the two word, uh, uh, two letter word at the beginning. And 
I thought of go something to something, and then my something sounded like it would make sense, and then my asthma just jumped into my head, so it all, it actually came together pretty quickly. Oh, wow. And how long have you been playing the puzzle? I would say since 1993. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, uh, I, I work uh, for the university library system at the University of Pittsburgh, and um, I like to walk and hike and travel, read. So it sounds like you are totally ready to play the puzzle, right? I don't know, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> well, we're here. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. So take it away, Will. All right, Alice and Aisha, every answer today is a familiar two-word phrase with the initials HR. For example, if I said corporate department, you would say human resources. So here you go. Number one is the Kentucky Derby or Preakness. Horse race. That's it. Number two is a big baseball hit. Home run. Uh-huh. A vehicle and a drag race. Hot rod. That's it. A list of top students. Honor roll. Uh-huh. Waterway past New York City. Hudson River. Uh-huh. African-American cultural movement of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, Harlem Renaissance. Excellent. Weapon in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Um, something Ray. Yes. Hmm. It's a four-letter word starting with H. Four-letter word. Uh, uh, it means the opposite of cold. Hot, hot Ray? Uh, well, uh, the, the noun form of that. Heat Ray, I'm sorry. Heat Ray is it. You got Heat it. Heat Ray. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Operation for someone who has difficulty walking. Hip replacement. That's it. A hobby through which amateurs send messages around the world? Um, oh, uh, radio. Yes, what kind? Oh, um, it's, I'm blanking. It's like a ham? It, it's a three-letter word. Ham? Ham radio, you got it. <laughs> a place to hang one's chapeau. Hat rack. That's it, and your last one is a spa. Uh, spa, um, re something resort? Yes, what kind? Like a, oh, health resort? Yeah, the health resort. Good job, Alice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Alice, you ran away with that. That was amazing. Like, you were just going so fast. Amazing job. How do you feel? I feel incredibly lucky that it was not um, something that I had no clue about. <laughs> <laughs> So very good job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Alice, what member station do you listen to? Uh, I listen to WESA in Pittsburgh. I'm a sustaining member. Oh, we love to hear that. That's Alice Doolittle of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. This was fun. Okay, Will. So what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Michael Schwartz of Florence, Oregon. Name certain musical instruments, and this is plural. The first, third, fourth, and fifth letters spell something that holds the things named by the last five letters. What instruments are these? So again, some certain musical instruments, plural. The first, third, fourth, and fifth letters spell something that holds the things named by the last five letters. What instruments are these? 
When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle. Click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, September 7th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. What's that saying? An apple a day keeps the doctor away? Well, what if doctors could prescribe fresh produce? A produce prescription program did just that, helping those with diet-related disease afford fruit and veggies. Strawberries, blueberries, cherries, you know, being able to buy healthy food, you feel like a millionaire. I did. A new study evaluates the benefits of food as medicine. Don't miss that story on Monday's Morning Edition. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. They're known for soaring above the court, twisting and turning before their slam dunks, effortless passes and alley-oops, swoosh. You couldn't see it, but I did the little hand signal. Professional basketball players are fly, or they can be. That's also the name of a new coffee table book by Mitchell S. Jackson. Fly, the big book of basketball fashion, argues that the clothing NBA players wear off court is just as influential as their moves on the court. And Mitchell Jackson joins us now to break down the evolution of fashion and basketball over the years. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I like that. I can imagine that little swoosh, too. You saw that, <laughs> yes. As someone yeah. who never plays basketball, I'm five <laughs> feet tall um, and very unathletic. But this book, <laughs> it, it is a coffee table book because like it's big and it has this incredible photo archive of NBA players and all of these iconic looks. Can you describe one of the outfits from the book that you feel really sums up the idea of like NBA fashion and style? Yeah, sure. There's a photo of LeBron on the night that he broke Kareem's scoring record. And uh, I remember watching and seeing him come through the tunnel and he had on a black look like silk suit and he had the lapel pin on he had all his jewelry on he had his shades he had his inseam him just right some black shoe i was like oh homie breaking the record tonight like you can't come down the tunnel looking like this and not break this record tonight and so i think that's really emblematic of the kind of statements that players make oh wow i i love the the picture of Magic Johnson in the fur coat. Oh, yeah, that's um, iconic. With the hood. <laughs> yeah, going into the, I guess that was the All-Star game. It's a moment, right? Oh, it's no a question. moment. <laughs> yeah, I think it's had some of that same LeBron energy and like, mm -hmm. I know I'm the man. Yeah. And I'm going to show up and, uh, and, and wear a thing that makes me the center of attention. Mm. And of course, one of the biggest sports figures ever was Michael Jordan. Your book is divided up into different eras based on like what was happening in the game and in the world. And one is simply the Jordan era. And that's from 1981 to 1998. And you say about Michael Jordan that he defined style during this time 
quote for better or worse. So I, I want to know what what was the better and 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 what was the worse. Okay, I'm gonna give you two betters. Uh, one better was the bald head. You know, Jordan. If you remember when Jordan first came in the league, he had a kind of a little short afro, very short afro, and then he started. You know, his hairline started receding. And unlike some men who hang <laughs> yeah. on maybe too long, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Jordan yeah. went baldy, and I think he gave a lot of other men courage to wear mm -hmm. their hair bald. So I'll, I'll give him, you know, that that was a big style moment. And then I'll say the hoop. Mm, right. The, hoop so the, thong, the, the gold hoop. Yeah. A lot of people started wearing gold hoops because of Michael Jordan. And then for the worst, I mean, <laughs> I those suits that that Mike had on with the 17 buttons and the, you know, that hung down to his kneecap. I just I disagree with those. You did, okay. <laughs> but so I, he, I'm his, also not, you know, I'm not uh, his age. So I mean, uh -huh. maybe I'm just not seeing something. But yeah, I, I disagree with the infinity button suits. Okay, they were just too big, too baggy, all the, yeah, the baggy suits, yeah, you, you, yeah. you didn't feel that. Yeah, but you know, I think also, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the errors, because the Jordan era to me is, you can't divorce it from Reaganomics, right? And so, you think about Jordan coming in in 84, and what that meant for the economy to recover. I remember shows like Miami Vice, you know, they were wearing suits everywhere, so it was really lifestyles of the rich and famous, like, it was an era where, like, the economy was kind of flush with money again, and people were being very ostentatious. Well, I mean, we can't mention Jordan without talking about sneakers. And obviously, there's a whole sneaker culture that's intertwined with basketball. And you have a top 10 in the book. But but talk about some of the most impactful basketball sneakers of all time. I mean, you really got to take it back to pro kids. I think those were the first sneakers that were sponsoring NBA stars. Then you get to Converse and Chuck Taylors, who, I mean, everybody wore Chucks. I mean, I had Chucks back in the day. And then Jordan and Nike just took it over, right? We would not have sneaker culture without Michael Jordan and Air Jordans. After the Jordan era, there's the Iverson effect between 1999 and 2009. Allen Iverson, you know, he had the cornrows, the tattoos, you know, and everything was just so hip-hop. Explain how Iverson changed fashion in basketball. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that you mentioned him in, in hip-hop because I think Iverson is a reflection of hip-hop culture. And at the same time that he is reaching his apex, hip-hop is is coming into its golden era, right? With Jay-Z and Eminem and, and Nelly, you know, people who are selling diamond records and the Fugees. And so uh, it's becoming probably the most uh, popular cultural phenomenon in the States. And those rappers and, and artists and even executives are roughly the same age as the players, right? They're coming out of the same neighborhoods. And so Iverson was a, a real reflection of that. And I think he also reflected the ethos of that era because hip hop is kind of brash and we break the rules. We, we, you know, we don't follow other people's rules. And um, I think he really had a lot of, a lot of that in him. Um, and then he he had the good fortune of being a phenomenal generational talent. And, but then there was this this backlash, right? Like what you call the dress code era. And this was a, a reaction to, I guess, like the the, the big fight uh, that happened at the a, one a, at a basketball game against Malice at the Palace. But it you know it also seemed like a, a reaction to Allen Iverson and, and to the hip-hop <laughs> infusion. And obviously you can't really talk about that without bringing up 
race, these are mostly black players and they're being told to wear business casual. Like, how did the players react? <laughs> well, at first they pushed back. Iverson was an ardent critic of it. It seems, on the surface at least, very racially motivated. You can't divorce hip-hop from race and class. And so, yeah, they pushed back. Some people was taking the fines early on. But eventually, uh, people started wearing suits. Um, and I think uh, one of the big stars at the time was Kobe Bryant, and he really embraced suits. For, there was a while when, when Kobe was wearing all Tom Ford suits and really, really impeccable tailoring. I really um, admired his shift to that. But yeah, and then, you know, the younger guys came in, being now the elder statesmen, LeBron, D-Wade, Chris Paul. Uh, and by the time they got in there and started wearing the suits, they, they started loosening up a little bit. I feel like with Instagram, now we're like in a super, very fashion-forward moment for basketball players. You interview P.J. Tucker, and he plays for the 76ers. And PJ said that this current era is the most fashionable in league history. So do you agree with that? I do. I think they value it more than any era in league history. I think there might be some players who value their fashion as much as they value basketball. I also think they know more about it. And they have more professionals around it. I think the league is supporting it even more. And the opportunities are there, right, for, for them to be brand ambassadors, for them to have their own brand. So that is unprecedented in the league. Um, speaking of PJ, I just saw him on the cover of Slam, and, and I think the cover line was uh, the NBA's undisputed sneaker king or something like that. And, and PJ is a star. He's a starter in the NBA, but I don't think most people would say that he's a, an all-league guy, right? So the fact that PJ is covering slam for his sneaker collection, I think speaks to where we are in, in NBA fashion, right? That someone who's not necessarily a huge star on the court can be a huge star off the court. That's Mitchell S. Jackson talking about Fly, the big book of basketball fashion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And had a great chat. In addition, from NPR News, I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. A new study finds people who receive free fruits and vegetables as part of a prescription produce program have clinically significant improvements in blood pressure and blood sugar, two key markers of heart and metabolic health. You'll get that story and a full range of the latest news tomorrow morning here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. On last week's Wait, Wait, superstar music producer Mark Ronson told us the real reason he decided to work on the other side of the soundboard. I think part of the reason why I became a DJ, I'm such a bad dancer that I picked this job where I would never really have to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Remember what they say, listen to this week's news quiz as if nobody's watching. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Florida is recovering from Hurricane Idalia, but there's still a lot of hurricane season left. We talked to the head of the federal agency that forecasts these storms. And Congress is back in session this week. Will lawmakers be able to avoid a government shutdown? Plus, how do we feel about movie running times? I have seen this summer's three-hour Oppenheimer twice. Yeah, no, I, I, I love a long movie. Writer Chris Klimek and our own Bob Mondello on the good, the bad, and the just plain too long when it comes to movies. It's Sunday, September 3rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Record heat is forecast in the central U.S. with triple-digit highs well above average there. Heat advisories cover parts of Nebraska, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. The National Weather Service says the unusual heat will move eastward tomorrow toward the mid-Atlantic. Farther west, heavy rain is leading to flooding, including in Nevada, where roads are shut and thousands of Burning Man festival goers are stranded. Ashley Smith managed to get out of the remote desert region, telling the BBC it wasn't easy. The entire desert is probably two inches deep of water and then below that, three inches of mud. Me and five friends, we need to get to work tomorrow. And uh, so we just packed up all our things, um, put on some boots. Uh, some of us put on plastic bags around our boots and just got walking about six miles to the nearest road. And then um, from there, it was another 10 miles or so to, to the nearest town. President Biden is asking Congress for more emergency funding to deal with back-to-back -back natural disasters, saying the effects of climate change cannot be ignored. As last week's Hurricane Adalia is testing Florida's beleaguered home insurance market. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the state is struggling with a shrinking pool of increasingly expensive home insurance options. Climate change is partly to blame for Florida's home insurance woes. The state is extremely vulnerable to rising seas and more intense hurricanes and has suffered hundreds of billions of dollars in insured losses in recent years. 
Mounting storm losses have led large national insurance companies to leave Florida. As a result, many homeowners have no option other than the state's expensive public insurer of last resort, called Citizens of Florida. Citizens has grown substantially and is now the largest provider of residential insurance in the state. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. In Texas, the state's suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton addressed supporters this weekend, days before he is set to appear at the Texas Capitol for an impeachment trial. From member station KERA, Nathan Collins has more. Collin County Republicans and Ken Paxton's supporters gathered at a Labor Day weekend celebration in Plano for hot dogs, hamburgers, and to hear from the suspended Attorney General. But Paxton did not give any details about his thoughts about the upcoming impeachment trial. Today, I would love to talk about what's coming up for me in the next couple of weeks. I have a gag order on me, so I cannot talk about that. The gag order was issued by the state's Republican lieutenant governor who criticized public attacks on Paxton, leveled by attorneys who will prosecute the impeachment case. The Republican-led Texas House issued numerous articles of impeachment for Paxton in May. The allegations range from securities fraud to interfering with a federal investigation. I'm Nathan Collins in Plano. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Lynn community is in mourning after gunfire killed two people and injured six others in two shootings this weekend. Essex County DA Paul Tucker says two of the injured are in critical condition. Lynn Police Chief Christopher Reddy said in a press conference yesterday that the violence must stop. We are working with our partners on the state police, as well as some of our federal partners, um, to bring additional resources to address this issue, which is not only a problem in our community, but it's a problem in many urban communities, and that's the problem of gun violence. The DA says authorities believe the shootings were not random and believe the two shootings are unrelated to each other. Lynn police are asking anyone with information to contact them. Attorney General Andrea Campbell has secured more than 100 indictments against five defendants in connection with the teardown of a Fall River Elementary School. Campbell says the 2018 demolition was done illegally and polluted the neighborhood with asbestos, lead and dust. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency had to spend nearly $2 million to remove the asbestos. Massachusetts is gearing up for a strong fall tourism season, according to the state's Executive Office of Travel and Tourism. Massachusetts lodging data shows a three and a half percentage point increase in rooms sold the first half of this year compared to the same time period in 2019 before the pandemic. The state's tourism head, Kate Fox, says visitors have a lot of options in Massachusetts this fall. The forecast for foliage has been great. Uh, We have the Big E coming in Springfield. I I know that the communities in western Massachusetts and and throughout the state are ready to see continued visitation uh, through the fall. Fox says agricultural tourism, such as apple picking, is still going to be a big draw this fall, despite some crop damage from heavy rainfall this summer. This afternoon, the Red Sox play the Royals in Kansas City. It is 72 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today and highs in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. If you're asked to evacuate by your local officials, you want to get out of harm's way. You don't have to go too far, maybe just tens of miles to get inland away from that storm surge. That's the voice of Michael Brennan recently advising the public on what to do in the wake of Hurricane Idalia that has left a trail of devastation throughout the southeast. He's the director of the National Hurricane Center and took the reins just over a month before the start of the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season. Michael Brennan joins us now. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you. So uh, you've been and you've had to deal with countless weather events during your tenure at the center. What struck you the most about Hurricane Idalia? You know, Idalia was yet another rapidly intensifying hurricane that we've seen several of that have made landfall along the Gulf Coast of the United States during the past several years. And that always creates challenges because we can have a system that goes from maybe not existing at all or being very weak to being up to a major hurricane within just two or three days. And it it can reduce the time that people have to prepare and react. But I think in general, we saw a pretty good response in terms of preparation and and evacuations and uh, and reaction in advance of Adalia by most folks uh, in its path. Uh, How have you seen hurricanes evolve since you first started at the NHC? Well, we came out of a a long period without any major hurricane landfalls in the United States, all the way from going back to 2005 up until 2017. So we sort of had a big gap. I mean, we had significant storms. You think of Sandy, Irene, uh, Matthew, other hurricanes, but we've had you know, nine major hurricane landfalls in the United States since 2017, now up including Adalia. So one of the challenges we face is that we have more people living along the coast. There's more infrastructure there, more property there, the potential for more loss of life and damage. But the good news is, is that the forecast that we make and the information that we're able to provide to people about the hazards associated with the storms has, has improved dramatically since I you know, came to the Hurricane Center in 2008, where we're really able to provide a lot more information, for example, about storm surge, which is the hazard that has the potential to kill the most people in tropical storms and hurricanes in a single day, as we saw you know, in Hurricane Ian in 2022. We have specific warnings and products now that can provide people a much better idea of the threat of, the, of storm surge that they'll face in a storm even two or three days prior to landfall. And that was certainly not the case 10 or 15 years ago. So tell us about how climate change is affecting hurricane behavior in your view. I mean, there there are some studies that suggest, you know, in a warming climate, the intensity of storms will increase by a small amount and that we could have more rapidly intensifying storms. But we're more confident in the impacts of the water hazards are actually going to increase. For example, we know that sea levels are rising as the oceans warm. And by the end of this century, uh, sea levels are going to be two to three feet higher than they were just a few years ago. And that makes more places more susceptible to storm surge because the base water level is all that much higher before you even have a storm come along. We're also seeing increased rainfall rates, not just in tropical storms and hurricanes, but in weather systems in general that can cause more flooding. And we expect those rainfall rates to increase by about 15%. And that rainfall flooding has been the biggest killer in tropical storms and hurricanes in this country in the last 10 years. You've been with the center for 15 years. What is it like being working at the center and having to make these weather predictions that affect people's lives so dramatically? You know, it's it's a really rewarding uh, experience to be able to 
you know, serve the American public this way. Uh, you know, these storms are going to happen whether we're here or not. And our job is to, to make sure that we can get, get people through them safely and pr protect lives and property as best we can. So it's a really fulfilling job. Uh, and it's certainly a sobering job at times when you see storms and you know storms are going to be devastating to communities. And being affected by a major hurricane can change the character of a community for generations. It can lead to all sorts of suffering and pain and, and, and trauma in people's lives. So that's something we deal with because we deal with every storm here. And uh, no matter where it hits, uh, we, we feel a little bit of that ourselves. So what is your team looking for as you move forward in this hurricane season? And, and, and what do you want the public to know? Uh, we got a lot of hurricane season left. You know, we're not even really at the statistical peak is here in the next, you know, week or so. But uh, the vast majority of the hurricane activity in the Atlantic happens between mid-August and mid to late October. So we've got a long ways to go. Uh, the thing we can certainly tell people is there are going to be more storms. We don't know exactly where they're going to go or who they're going to affect. But people who live in a hurricane-prone area, as you saw with Adalia this past week, you need to have that plan in place because you can have a storm develop and come affect you in a very short period of time. And this is the time if you don't have your, your plan ready, have your plan ready, get your hurricane supplies ready. And if you live in one of those evacuation zones where you might be asked to leave your home in advance of a storm, have that plan in place about where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, what you're going to take with you, because it's a lot easier to make that plan now than to make it in the face of an approaching storm. That's Michael Brennan. He is the director of the National Hurricane Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been just a few days since the Department of Health and Human Services announced the first 10 drugs that Medicare will directly negotiate prices for. But in courts across the country, pharmaceutical groups are already suing the Biden administration, trying to invalidate the new program. Nicholas Bagley specializes in health law at the University of Michigan. Previously, he was chief counsel to Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat of Michigan. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This push to negotiate cheaper drug prices, like remind us, why is the government able to do this and why is this only happening now? People might have thought they would have been able to do this before. Yeah, well, remember, cast your mind back about 20 years, Medicare actually didn't originally cover prescription drugs at all. And prescription drugs were added to Medicare as a benefit only in 2003. And as part of the price for getting that um, coverage over the finish line, Republican legislators insisted that Medicare not have the authority to individually negotiate the prices for drugs. Negotiations would instead be handled by individual prescription drug plans that people would enroll in. And there were a lot of concerns that this was, you know, leaving Medicare's bargaining power to one side and, and essentially kneecapping the federal government and trying to get a good price for taxpayers for these drugs. So, so about these lawsuits that are going on now, about how many lawsuits are there and who's driving them? There are eight of them as of now, um, and they're primarily driven by the pharmaceutical companies whose drugs have been identified for negotiation. So these are companies that are saying, look, we uh, would prefer to keep selling our drugs at the prices that we've you know, sold them for in the past. We don't want to enter into these price negotiations. And we believe that the law requiring us to do so, or effectively requiring us to do so, is unconstitutional. Well, what's the argument? They're making a bunch of different kinds of constitutional claims. It's, a, you know, I call it throwing constitutional spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. But the core of their argument is that it's Medicare demanding that drug manufacturers reduce their prices. It's actually not a negotiation. It's a 
It's a set of price controls. And they say those price controls violate their rights in a couple of different ways. They say that the prices are going to be so low that they effectively take their drugs without just compensation. And that's prohibited under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. They also say that they're forced to go into these things that are called negotiations. And they say, well, we don't think these are really negotiations at all. We're being coerced. And we don't think these prices are going to be fair. And so therefore, you're compelling us to make statements that we think are untrue. Um, There are other constitutional claims too, but those are the ones that appear in all of the lawsuits and the ones that have gotten the most attention so far. Is there a case to be made that this is the government, that maybe you don't have a lot of recourse or that it's not a fair negotiation? Yeah, from the drug company's perspective, this is going to feel like a lot of pressure um, because in order to avoid the lower prices for their drugs, they're going to have to withdraw from the Medicare and Medicaid program altogether. In other words, what Medicare is saying is, listen, if you want to sell us one of your drugs, we're going to insist on what we think is a fair price. And if you don't like it, you have to walk away altogether. And there's a lot of money coming from Medicare and Medicaid into drug companies' pockets, and they're going to think twice before stepping away. And so that from their perspective, it sure feels like coercion in the sense that they don't feel like they have a choice. But, and this is really an important point, just because the Medicare and Medicaid programs are so lucrative, it doesn't mean that the drug manufacturers are being coerced into participating. So for them to say that this is somehow a price control and that they're somehow bereft of any free choice, well, that's a, that's a consequence of just how lavishly we spend for prescription drugs. Um, it doesn't count as coercion. It certainly doesn't count coercion under the law. With all of this legal wrangling, though, it seems like this is the sort of thing that might end up at the Supreme Court. Is the government on solid legal ground, or um, could the Supreme Court strike this down the way they struck down, say, the Biden plan to discharge federal student loan debt for millions of Americans? It's a good question. Uh, And certainly the drug manufacturers are hoping to take this case up to the Supreme Court. I should also add that, you know, like the Biden administration's student loan relief program, that was an executive branch action. And when the executive branch moves to implement federal law, those decisions are often subject to pretty intensive court scrutiny. In this case, the drug companies are challenging the constitutionality of an act of Congress. Those are much harder to win. Could the Supreme Court accept the drug manufacturer's invitation to work pretty radical change in the law? It's possible. Um, I don't see any reason to think that's likely. You know, this isn't a massive push to change the law coming from all organs of the Republican Party political establishment. This is a bunch of drug companies that are upset about Medicare price negotiation. And, And to be honest, the position they're pushing is not popular among Democrats or Republicans. That's Nicholas Bagley, law professor at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9.18 and coming up in about half an hour here on 90.9 WBUR. You'll consider the arguments for and against long movies. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard and ART. Welcome Little Amal, a renowned symbol of human rights, on Harvard Yard September 7th at 6 p.m. amrep.org. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere you go. Listen live and catch up on what you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. It is 72 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today with highs in the mid-80s. Same forecast for tomorrow. This is WBUR. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Record heat is forecast in the central U.S. with triple-digit highs. The National Weather Service says the unusual heat heightens health risks and advises checking on vulnerable neighbors. Meantime, heavy rain is leading to flooding farther west. In Ukraine, Russia conducted a massive overnight drone attack hitting shipping ports on the Danube River west of Odessa. Kyiv says they shot down most of the 25 drones launched, but damage was done to port infrastructure and two people were injured. Tomorrow, Turkey's president will try to persuade Russia's leader to return to the Black Sea grain deal abandoned in July that allowed tons of grain to flow from Ukraine. Recep Tayyip Erdogan is meeting with Vladimir Putin on Russia's Black Sea coast. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Congress is coming back to Washington this week after lawmakers were home for a month-long summer recess. But there's a lot on their plate. First up is a fight over government funding that could trigger a shutdown. Mitch McConnell, the top Senate Republican, summed it up this way. Honestly, it's it's a pretty big mess. McConnell faces a big test. He froze again at a public event, raising questions about his fitness to serve as leader. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing calls from his right flank to move to impeach President Biden. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Hey, Aisha. Hey. So is Congress going to be able to avoid a shutdown? You know, they don't have a lot of time. And as the tradition is in Washington, Congress is leaving important things pretty much to the last minute. The problem is this House and Senate aren't working off the same math, and they haven't agreed to even one of the dozen annual spending bills they need to pass. The debt ceiling deal that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden negotiated back in May set overall spending levels for the fiscal year. But a group of House conservatives who didn't like that deal forced McCarthy to craft bills at a lower spending level. The Senate is working on the outline from the debt ceiling deal. So the two chambers are really on basically a collision course. McCarthy, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and the White House 
do agree that some type of short-term spending bill is needed to avoid a shutdown. They're talking about passing what's called a continuing resolution, or CR, to keep federal agencies funded through sometime in early December. So beyond keeping the lights on at federal agencies, what else are they working on? The two big things are disaster aid and money for Ukraine. The Biden administration sent up an emergency funding request earlier this summer, initially asked for $12 billion for FEMA to respond to natural disasters. They need $4 billion more. They've asked for that since the fires in Maui and Hurricane Adalia swept through the southeastern coastal states. The White House also wants $20 billion for Ukraine, but there's a block of House conservatives who oppose any more money, so it'll be tough for the leaders to get that through. So the leaders on Capitol Hill, specifically the top Republicans, are facing different challenges. Uh, Let's talk about McConnell first. Like, how's he doing following that episode in Kentucky? The Capitol physician, Brian Monahan, cleared McConnell to work and said after consulting with him and his neurology team, the 81-year-old senator could continue his schedule as planned. McConnell had a fall back in March and suffered a concussion. And uh, Dr. Monahan said that lightheadedness is a symptom after recovering from a concussion. But these two public episodes of freezing have really been jarring. And Senate Republican colleagues so far are supporting McConnell. But there are continuing questions about how serious his health issues are. He hasn't answered the question about whether he's going to run for reelection in 2026. But Senate Republicans want to regain control of the chamber in 2024. And There's now new questions about whether McConnell can remain leader of his party in the Senate. And what about House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? He has a razor thin majority and conservatives want to impeach President Biden. So is that going to move ahead? It does seem likely that impeachment will move in the House. McCarthy has increasingly talked more about launching an impeachment inquiry. But House Republicans haven't uncovered any evidence of any wrongdoing by President Biden. Some are alleging corruption around his son Hunter Biden's business dealings when Biden was vice president. But these House committee chairmen that are pushing impeachment haven't produced any evidence that the president received any financial benefit. You know, Republicans in the House are split. There are moderates who don't think it's a good idea to move ahead without some justification or evidence. But other allies of former President Trump especially after the recent indictments over the summer, are really eager when the Congress comes back this fall to impeach President Biden. It's unclear whether McCarthy will call a vote to launch something formally because he really doesn't have the votes right now to pass that. But the committees could go ahead and continue to do the work to potentially draft these articles of impeachment. You know, I think based on McCarthy's recent comments, that it's the natural next step to do an inquiry. It's really a question of when, not if, they move forward. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. Later today on All Things Considered, NPR's Rachel Martin reflects on her series, Enlighten Me. I wanted to look at the internal questions that a lot of us have, the big existential stuff. Like how to navigate life as a good person. Catch Rachel in conversation with host Scott Detrow. Listen live on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. (laughs) 
In the highlands of Pakistan, glaciers are life. Residents rely on them for water, and many believe a Sufi saint taught their ancestors how to create new glaciers by mating them. The practice faded decades ago, but it's getting a second look as a warming planet causes glaciers to melt more rapidly. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Pakistan's far north. Yasin Malik sings as he takes us up the mountain looming over his village, Chunda. It wiles the time as we walk for hours to a cavern that residents believe is inhabited by ice-dwelling ghosts and fairies, which protect a baby glacier that Malik and his friends made by following an ancient tradition. They hope it will grow to replace the glaciers the village has long relied on, glaciers that are melting away. As shepherds pass, Malik tells me glacier mating is done by mixing white glaciers, which they believe are female, with male glaciers, which are brown, the colour formed by debris. Two years ago in winter, Malik climbed K2, the world's second highest mountain, to get chunks of the best female glaciers. Others trekked four days away to get the finest female glacier specimens. They took those chunks up Chunda Mountain, they placed them in a shaded crevice, and they blanketed them with coal and chaff. They asked for God's blessings and sacrificed a goat. This is the first time they've returned since. Malik is hoping the glacier baby has grown. The future water supply of his village could depend on it. We scramble over boulders. Malik's friend, Saeed Baltistani, shows us the crevice where there's a car-sized block of ice, the glacier baby. In the falling rain, I ask. Do you think that she's growing? You can see. He says, yeah, look, the glacier is spreading under the rocks. But will it grow into something large enough to supply this village with water? Residents of other villages say they tried this method with mixed results. Across the border in India, Surya Narayanan Balasubramanian is an expert on artificial ice reservoirs. He says the point of glacier mating could be the ritual itself. So maybe the point was never to make baby glaciers, it was more to have uh, the value of glaciers in, you know, in the society. A ritual that drives home the importance of glaciers. And perhaps what the ritual underscores now is how desperate people are to find ways to adapt to climate change. But other scientists say the process is sound. This is mountain hydrologist Jacob Steiner. Ice grafting works. You take that ice, put it into caves, and there it's much colder. It's going to rain on top as well, so it's going to freeze, so that ice actually grows. But Steiner says, to be clear, the residents aren't creating glaciers, they're growing ice. Amid this debate, Chunda's residents have a prominent backer, the United Nations Development Programme. It helps people adapt to climate change in Pakistan. They provided a few hundred dollars for the glacier-mating ritual. Knut Utsby is the Pakistan representative. We should not underestimate the power of the ingenuity of people themselves. And they do have ingenuity. People in Baltistan are teaching themselves another way to curb water shortages by building ice stupas basically a frozen fountain that melts in spring. It's a technique pioneered in neighbouring India and migrated here through YouTube videos. 
So hours from where residents are trying to make glaciers, we drive to the village of Pari, where there's a more visibly successful endeavour. We meet Bashir Haydari near the village stream that he says was once drying up for lack of snowfall. Then five years ago, he watched a video about ice stupas and figured out how to build one. He takes us up the local mountain with his friends to show us what he made. Haydari's friends chant in praise as they see it. Haydari created this ice stupa by piping water downstream to a gorge. The water rushed down and was forced up through nozzles. It spread out like mist. It froze through the winter. On the day we arrive, it's a truck-sized pile of ice. For months, it's been melting water into the village stream. One friend, Yasser Parvi, says villagers thought Haydari was crazy when he began. He's mentally upset. He's doing something that is impossible. Now, he's a star. One woman, Nargis, tells us before the stupa, she couldn't grow food for her kids. She tears up and says, thank God for this man. Hours away in the village of Machulo, residents are also resolving water shortages in a more traditional way. As evening falls, they gather by the village stream. One woman, Zahra, says, we've come to steal water. She laughs, but it's dire. As night falls, Zahra uses her shovel to divert water into her irrigation canal. Machulo villagers are meant to take it in turns to use the stream water. And it's not Zahra's turn. But she says she's desperate. If she can't grow food, her family goes hungry. One elder tells me he hopes to try build an ice stupa this fall. NPR News, Machulo. This Labor Day weekend, you might make one last carefree visit to the pool. Lucy Ruth Cummins definitely will. She's always loved taking her kid to the public pool in New York City. A writer and illustrator, Cummins found inspiration there for a new children's book. Our Pool celebrates everything from sunscreen to cannonballs. NPR's Rose Friedman joined the author for an afternoon swim. The day I meet Lucy Cummins, it's pretty quiet at the pool. It's noon on a weekday. But a dad I've seen around the neighborhood is doing some serious laps. Cummins tells me she's by no means a champion swimmer. I'm really just a doggy paddler. But she's thrilled to be in what she calls an obvious oasis. You've got this beautiful turquoise pool. And then all around us, we've got like taller buildings. Years ago, Cummins began taking her then three-year-old son, Nate, to the pool in her neighborhood. Nate and I had had like a particularly great day. He made friends in the pool. It's so interesting to watch children just kind of make those connections, even if they're just for that day. We had such a blast and I was sitting on the couch and I said to my husband, I feel so lucky to have that resource. Cummins wanted to translate that feeling of a perfect day at the pool. So she started drawing the scenes around her. This spread shows a bunch of different mothers with their children draped behind them, kind of like capes, which is the thing that um, my son really loves to do is lock his arms around my neck and let me drag him around the pool. I wanted to express that thing, but then I also wanted, if you're reading it, that you could feel how the water drags you. On every page, Cummins shows kids and their grown-ups at a bustling, diverse public pool. In reality, 
I feel I'm telling the story of a day with Nate and I at the pool because this is a day that we have. But any of these kids could be the narrator. In that way, I hope it comes across that it's kind of the day anyone can have and that we're all having. Universal experiences and shared spaces are part of the magic of city living, she says. The thing about becoming a parent in New York City was you start to look around and you see how the community is shaped around bringing people together, like libraries and playgrounds and public parks and public swimming pools. I've had so many friendships that have started just kind of incidentally through interactions that my kids have initiated. Cummins made the art for our pool in 2019. By the time she was writing the text, it was the middle of the pandemic. The pool was closed. I went from having a very open world and a very connected experience of living in a city alongside other parents and suddenly that all closed in. And so I wrote that book and when I brought it to my editor, it was with the thought, we hope this happens again. It was really putting a wish into the universe. Her wish came true. With that, Lucy Cummins hops into the water. How's it feel? It's beautiful. Rose Friedman, NPR News, New York. Authorities are investigating a death at the Burning Man Festival in the remote Nevada desert. Tens of thousands are stuck there because of heavy rainfall that's turned the site into a mud bath. People are being told to ration food and water. Anya Kamenitz is at Burning Man and joins us now from Black Rock City, Nevada. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. So I, it sounds pretty messy and, and, and sort of dicey. Like, what's it like there? <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's not a, not everyone here has Wi-Fi like we do, so communications move slowly across the desert. It started raining around 1 o'clock Friday, and it was about eight hours in before it really dawned on us that this is going to be a really serious situation. So, so what are authorities saying about how long you all might be stuck there? So um, basically, uh, we were forecasted to get rain overnight, which we did, but just a little tiny bit. So now the clock kind of starts on drying out the roads um, to start to get people out of here. And the update posted by the organization says that it's going to be, uh, you know, Monday night would be, or Monday late in the day is an optimistic start. The thing is, Aisha, that it can take 12 hours in line on a good day to get out of Burning Man. And now you have the entire city trying to leave at once. So unless they you know, implement some kind of dismissing the city by sector, um, it's going to be really, really hairy getting out. And so how are people coping? Like, do do they have enough supplies? Is there enough food and water? And and what about like the bathroom situation? (laughs) Well, the term apocalypse has been bandied about. Oh my goodness. Um, Basically, (laughs) I mean, porta potty service obviously stopped on Friday. Um, I would say people come to Burning Man because they want to contend with the elements and deal with survival and cooperation, and they're getting a lot of chances to do that here. Most people who came, you know, planned on having food and water and extras. Um, the lack of porta potty service means that it's only solid waste in there. Um, and you know, at my camp in particular on Friday, Saturday morning, we said like no more showers, no more dishwashing, water's just for drinking. Um, we're pooling all our food as far as resources, and I would say. Honestly, walking around the city, spirits are pretty high. 
Wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's incredible to hear. Um, Yeah, I don't know if I would be that chipper. Um, But but how is this weather (laughs) event kind of playing into discussions about the environment and climate, which I gather there was a focus at the beginning of the festival. There were maybe some protesters. So what are people saying about that? Yeah, that's pretty serious. So, um, you know, last year, uh, the event had triple digit temperatures that were quite dangerous. This year, there was a blockade by climate protesters on Monday. Um, They wanted uh, Burning Man to ban single use plastics and uh, private jet uh, travel into and out of the event. And this year's rain, which is unprecedented, has a lot of people questioning, you know, is it really still such a good idea to bring so many people out here to this incredibly fragile and extreme kind of and harsh environment? That's Anya Kamenitz at Burning Man in Black Rock City, Nevada. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Authorities in Lynn are investigating two fatal shootings. The Essex County DA says the shootings were not random and appear to be unrelated to each other. Early yesterday morning, gunfire killed one person and injured six others. Two of the injured are in critical condition. Last night in Lynn, a man was shot and killed. Lynn police are asking anyone with information to contact them. The Worcester Art Museum has relinquished a statue transferring ownership to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That office has been investigating a smuggling network involving antiquities looted from southeastern Turkey. The museum says it received information that the Roman bronze bust that the museum purchased in the 1960s was likely stolen and improperly imported. The Worcester Art Museum says the bust will be repatriated to its country of origin. The Gloucester Schooner Festival wraps up today. The Parade of Schooners takes place this morning on Gloucester Harbor. And at 1 o'clock this afternoon, the mayor's races get underway. This afternoon, the Red Sox face the Royals in Kansas City. It is 72 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow for Labor Day and Tuesday. Plenty of sunshine. Highs in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. 
and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. When the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action and struck down race-conscious emissions in June, Asian Americans had very different reactions. Some saw affirmative action as a tool to fight racism. Others saw it as a racist tool. NPR's Sandia Dirks has the story of two incoming college freshmen who represent this divide. Right now, the college class of 2027, the last class to be shaped by affirmative action, is moving into dorm rooms and attending freshman orientations. My name's Ruthbridge Hole. I am an incoming freshman at Stanford University. I caught up with Hole earlier this summer. He was celebrating the end of affirmative action because for him... Affirmative action is basically the use of racial stereotypes, right? Oh, Asians are all just smart memorizing drones. We don't need them. Hole points to the personality portion of the admissions process at Harvard, where prospective students were rated. Asian Americans consistently scored lower than everyone else. They were seen as quiet, maybe even boring. In other words, they were racially stereotyped, Hole says. And this gets at how he understands racism. The root of all racism, arguably, is racial stereotypes, right? It's the idea that, oh, I'm superior to this entire group because this entire group is X and we are not X. Is that a fair statement? Fair, but incomplete, says Natasha Waraku. Racial stereotypes are one aspect of racism. Waraku is a professor of sociology at Tufts who studies race and admissions. Sociologists and psychologists would say that there are two kinds of racism, right? One is interpersonal and individual racism, right? This kind of what he's describing of, I see you as one dimensional because you're Asian, you are like this. But there's a second form that's more structural, systemic racism or structural racism. And that is about patterns in society. Waraku says racism is not just about stereotypes. She says it's been seeded into our systems, housing, healthcare, policing, and education. All those factors are why, when affirmative action ended in California schools, Black and Latino enrollment plummeted. It's never quite recovered. And that's closer to how Andrew Kang, an incoming freshman at Harvard, understands racism. I think of racism as something that exists like within our systems, but also something that will filter, that will come down into our interpersonal relationships. Kang doesn't think affirmative action was the use of racial stereotypes. He thinks it was an attempt to put a thumb on the scale for communities who have been historically marginalized to help combat the racism embedded in education. Without it, he thinks the system will do what it was set up to do, favor the white and the wealthy. And Kang fears that this is all part of something bigger, a war on diversity. Ending affirmative action, he says, It's just one piece of this larger puzzle of trying to end race in public life, trying to not talk about race anymore. Republican bans of books and courses that discuss race, laws that ban so-called critical race theory or divisive topics like race. Kang sees this as a push to silence talking about race, so that no one has to do anything about racism. A push. Trying to say that systemic racism does not exist. Which is something the man behind the ban on affirmative action, Edward Bloom, has said. He doesn't believe in systemic racism. He rejects the implication that racism is part of what this country is. But for Kang, that's just misinformed. Open up a history book. Racism is so much of what America is. 
Ratvij Hole doesn't deny racism, but he wouldn't quite say whether he believed racism was systemic. Do you think systemic racism is an issue in America? Systemic racism is one of those terms that we can't even decide what it means. I mentioned that it means racism is alive inside systems. But Hole says even just racism is hard to define. Depending on how you define racism, it can affect different people. You know what I mean? Which is, of course, the point of this story. Hole sees racism as rooted in stereotypes. For him, removing the use of race in admissions will remove the ability to use stereotypes, removing the racism. But Kang sees racism as reproducing through systems, limited access to generational wealth and education. Affirmative action opened up that access. Now those doors have again been closed. For these two students, the answer to the question of how to combat racism differs radically based on how they define it. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. Sales of tequila and mezcal have more than tripled in the U.S. in the last decade. No wonder growers and distillers of in the American Southwest are hard at work planting the spiky agave plants used to make them. John Burnett has the story. Agave plants thrive in the arid climate and brilliant sunshine of Texas. Couldn't you harvest them and distill a Lone Star Mezcal? I am Leonardo Sanchez. I am co-founder of Ancestral Craft Spirits. We're standing in a clearing not far from the muddy Rio Grande and the border town of Roma, Texas. It's hotter than Hades. A couple of years ago, Sanchez and his partner planted 2,500 sharp-tipped agaves down here. What happened next did not bode well for the future of the first Texas mezcal. We came back one day and what we found is that there's a lot of hogs and javelines in this area and they like a lot of these little plants. So they ate thousands of them at the end of the day. So the Texas wild hogs destroyed your Mexican agaves? Yeah, exactly. Sanchez persevered. He brought more baby agaves from his native Mexico and put them in a plant nursery. Once he puts them in the ground and erects a hog-proof fence, it will take at least seven years for them to mature. Mexican distillers have been making tequila and its smoky cousin, mezcal, for more than 400 years. Like champagne from France, it has to come from Mexico if it's called tequila or mezcal. If it's made anywhere else, it's called an agave spirit. While his agaves are growing, Sanchez is importing agave juice from Oaxaca, Mexico, distilling and bottling it in Roma. Here's the story about how it got its brand name, Blasphemous. Eduardo, my partner, was sitting in the board of, of the Mexican company that makes the mezcal, and he was telling them, we have done uh, some special editions, uh, Guerrero, San Luis Potosí, so why don't we do a special edition, uh, Texas? And one of the board members told him eh, that would be a blasphemy. <laughs> and that's how the first Texas mezcal, Blasphemous, came about. But Texas was not the first. Californians have been growing and distilling agave for nearly a decade. On the West Coast, they don't have to worry about feral pigs. For them, the challenge is finding the right agave varieties that can withstand the cold, wet weather in the northern part of the state. Craig Reynolds is president of the California Agave Council with 50 members. He says everyone focuses on the downsides of climate change. But climate change also creates opportunities, particularly in agriculture. 
Reynolds says as California winters get warmer, other crops become more desirable, and agave is one of them. But how does it taste? I brought some samples of blasphemous to a pair of veteran bartenders in Brownsville, Juan Flores of Terras and Chris Galicia of Las Ramblas. Cheers. <laughs> they sniffed it and sloshed it around their palates. It smells sweet. A lot of spice to it, too. Like, it smells like apple pie for some reason. Is that just me? <laughs> I asked Galicia how Texas-made mezcal compares to traditional Oaxacan mezcal. It's traditionalist. I don't think would necessarily drink this, but, you know, somebody who's barely getting into the category, it's definitely right up their alley. I think things like this are good for a growing market, and it has a place on the back bar. American agave is in its infancy. Fifty years ago, Texas showed skeptics that it could make wine. Today, the Texas wine industry has an impact of $20 billion. With tequila and mezcal now outselling American whiskey, the new agave entrepreneurs hope there's room for a made-in-America agave spirit. John Burnett, Roma, Texas. It's one of the most anticipated movies of the fall season. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon hits theaters in October and stars Leonardo DiCaprio. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> but don't forget the snacks and, um, you know, wear very comfortable clothing because it's three hours and 26 minutes long, which got us here at Weekend Edition thinking about a controversial topic. Long movies. Love them or hate them. Good thing we got two experts on hand, NPR film critic Bob Mondello and Chris Klimek, host of Smithsonian Magazine's podcast, There's More To That. Welcome to the program, both of you. Good to be here. Hello, Aisha. Nice to be here. So, okay, let's just dive into this. Three hours plus for a movie is a huge commitment, is it not? I'll start with Bob. It is not. It's not. No. Oh, it is. Oh. Now tell me, tell me that you. Now let's be real about this. Do you binge watch things on television? From time to time. And that's more than three hours at a time, right? So what's your problem? I... It, it's no, no, no. Okay, and Chris, how do you feel about this? Let's 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 just set the table right here. You know, I think I can answer by saying that I have seen this summer's three-hour Oppenheimer twice. Yeah, no, I I, I love a long movie. You love a lot. Okay, so here's my thing, and this is what I will say just to lay out how I feel. There was a point where I was watching old Eddie Murphy movies, and I watched Beverly Hills Cop, and mm -hmm. it was like 90 minutes. This is the way movies need to be. Let's just get it in and out. And you know who agrees with you? Shakespeare. <laughs> okay, uh, now, okay right. now, Shakespeare, in the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, he has the prologue that says something about two hours traffic on this stage, which is what everybody thought in Elizabethan times drama should be. Two hours, right? Mm -hmm. Now, he wrote some stuff that was longer. He wrote some stuff that was shorter, but two hours is about right. And for movies, that's what people have been assuming for a long time. But sometimes you've got more to say about a movie. Sometimes you've got a lot more to say. Take a movie like um, Gone with the Wind, mm -hmm. okay? Yes. That's almost four hours, mm -hmm. right? And nobody much complains about that. But didn't they used to have intermissions? Back in the day, couldn't you get up, go to the bathroom or something during the, the, the movie? Yes, and in fact, I actually, let's let's listen to the, to the moment that you're about to get up and go to the bathroom and, and buy some popcorn. God is my witness. I'll never be hungry again. 
By the way, the concession stand is open, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So, Chris, like, when did long movies really take off? I mean, obviously, you had Gone with the Wind was way back in the day, but it seems like for a time there, maybe in the 80s and 90s, like, movies were maybe more 90 minutes. When did they start getting really long? There have always been long movies. There's always been an attempt to treat the length as a signifier of prestige when you think of, of like, Mm. the David Lean epics like Lawrence of Arabia and things like that. I think some of that was, you know, competing in the middle of the last century with with the new television. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop is a perfect example of, you know, right, 1984, right, 105 minutes long. I'm pretty sure Ghostbusters from that same year is about the same length. Like, you still had movies that were positioned for prestige and Oscars and all that that were allowed to be long. But the mainstream hits were really not allowed to be more than than two hours. Um, The biggest hit of the following year, Back to the Future. I got all the time I want. I got a time machine. That runs just under two hours. Uh, the thing that, that Bob said about the, the intermission got me thinking about how inconsistently that's been applied. I mean, in this modern era when we've had the, you know, the three-hour and two-minute Avengers Endgame and, and uh, Avatar The Way of Water, which I think is 312, neither of them have an intermission. Um, but every time I, I write about this, I go back to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, you know, 1968, it is only two and a half hours, and it has an intermission. Well, let's get on with it. Okay. So it is like standard length for a Marvel movie these days. Um, you know, but well, there if was you... a, back in the day, there was a reason for that, though. When back when there were uh, where theaters were freestanding, they, they weren't like twenty plexes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you had a movie that was longer than about two hours and ten minutes, then you couldn't get two shows in a night, right? You wanted sense. a seven thirty yeah. and a nine thirty show. If you push either of those times too far in the other direction to seven and ten. Audiences don't come to those right. shows. Mm-hmm. So that was the logic. In in a multiplex, they can just put it on in another house. Mm-hmm. So you can have five shows that are about 7.30 and, and get lots of audience. Yeah, I, I think there is almost an aesthetic use of the intermission to build suspense in 2001. When we know this because if you watch this film in home video now, the intermission card you know still comes up when you're, when you're watching the movie. But it's right after we realize that HAL 9000, the computer that runs this spaceship, realizes that the two astronauts intend to disconnect him, to kill him. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I don't know if it's the most famous scene in the movie, but certainly the most quotable (laughs) scene in this very dialogue light film. That comes right after the intermission. So it sounds like y'all are naming some of the ones that you feel like got it right by being long. But what about some of the ones that shouldn't have been that long and they were too long (laughs) and it was just too much? (laughs) Chris, you know what I'm going to say. Sure. I I cannot think of of a... a major superhero movie that couldn't be cut oh by 20 minutes. So Bob says superhero movies. Who was too long for you, Chris? Who who is like too long? Oh Don't wow, be nice. you're really letting me grind an axe here, and I and I appreciate it. Uh, every Fast and Furious movie. Why oh are those God. two hours and 20 minutes? Every single one. You don't turn your back on family. Um, because they're all ripped off from Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, which is under two hours. Uh, John Wick Chapter 4 was, I think, 2.49. Like, John Wick 4 is 70 minutes longer than John Wick 1. And, you know, that movie was a hit. Do you think it's better to watch a long movie at home where you can pause it, go to the bathroom, take a breather? Or it do is you think it's never better to watch a movie at home? <laughs> okay, that that never. goes that is <laughs> yeah. There are no circumstances under which a, a, a motion picture that was created for the big screen should be watched at home. Oh, okay. On the other hand, mm-hmm. I understand the rationale for watching it a second time at home, and that's okay. fine. 
the set yeah. of the second mm-hmm. time. Look, I, I mean, I am someone who this this is not an exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. I was diagnosed with a blood clot in my leg in 2019, oh 24 hours after I sat through the three and a half hour intermissionless The Irishman in a theater. <laughs> so well, I don't recommend that. You know, take a blood thinner if you have to. But uh, yeah, but I will I will always you, stump for the theatrical experience. That's NPR's Bob Mondello and Chris Klimek of Smithsonian Magazine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Aisha. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. And start your Monday with WBUR. You'll get a full range of the latest news, and you'll hear about how a pilot shortage and changing airline economics have combined to translate into less service for smaller airports. You'll consider what that means for the people who live in those areas. Also, documents obtained by public radio journalists in New Orleans show that a now-shuttered EPA investigation could have brought historic change to an area of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley. That and much more on Morning Edition tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR. A four-day work week, you say? Well, a new study out of the UK finds that employees love it, and so do their employers. Employers are realizing that if they can rethink where people work, they can also rethink how many days they're on the job. Could a four-day work week work in the United States? How and for whom? That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.